This is a Federal News Network podcast. What do the oil and gas industry, at least those that extract from public lands, and the Capitol Hill police have in common? Well, both need a little bit more oversight from Congress, according to my next guest. Here with a two-for-one set of recommendations, Project on Government Oversight Policy Analyst Tim Stretton. Tim, good to have you back. Good to be with you again. And let's talk about the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, part of the Interior Department. That has been an agency in somewhat, I guess, not so much turmoil, but it has been a lot of reform of it over the past 10 years or so. And now you have testified in behalf of a bill that would reform a lot of the whole oil and gas leasing. What is it that Interior and BOEM especially have to do differently? With the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, there's a lot of things that they could be doing that would result in more royalties being brought into the federal government. As it is now, there's many procedures that they do that allows for oil and gas companies drilling off the coast to not pay their fair share for resources extracted that belong to the American taxpayer. Specifically, one of the things that they've done that the Government Accountability Office has even pointed out is continuously retroactively lowering their valuations of lands that they lease. I think about 90% of the time when they've denied a low bid from a company, those companies came back and submitted higher bids. So, you know, in layman's terms, that just goes to show that these companies are intentionally lowballing the federal government. That leaves billions of dollars on the table. Maybe the question is, is there some objective measure that everyone should be using to understand the value of a given parcel that is applied for for drilling and mining? Well, I think based on the fact that when 90% of the time, when they do reject a bid, the company comes back and submits a higher bid, I think it goes to show that the bid valuation is probably actually accurate. You know, the companies recognize that this is a valuable lease. They just try to pay as little as they can. But government has a fiduciary duty to the taxpayer to make sure that they are collecting a fair market value. And as of now, they are not. Well, would a better system be, say, just to pay a certain amount of dollars or pennies, whatever the case might be, per unit of oil or gas that's extracted? That way, it doesn't matter. You don't worry about lease values. You just worry about the value of the extracted materials. It could be two cents on the cubic meter, one cent on the barrel. I'm just making up those numbers. But that kind of basis, instead of some leasing basis, which is, as you say, very subject to a lot of vagaries. So how the leasing works is they do pay a royalty for the amount of resources they actually extract. So I think for offshore, it's around 18.75%, which is actually a pretty good rate. That's actually increased over the years. But there is also a bid rate as well and a rental rate. And it's those that are actually a good amount. But when it comes for the actual leasing, it's just not being done properly. And I think more transparency on when the government does retroactively lower a lease value. I mean, sure, there's times where maybe they did overvalue it. But if they do, in fact, retroactively lower it, there should be some kind of public notice there. And you say also in your recommendations that you would require the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management to use a third party to examine the Bureau's delayed valuation system. Tell us more about that one. What's really interesting about this is there's obviously sometimes reasons why the agency may not want to actually go ahead with a lease sale. Maybe they want to wait till the next time there's a lease. However, when doing that, the amount of resources in that particular track may actually decrease over time, you know, if another nearby well is actually draining those resources. However, since I think 2017, the amount of leases have actually doubled. Instead of once a year, they're now every six months. And since that, the actual delayed value has actually 
increased over time, which even the GAO, again, has said doesn't make sense. Given the value of oil always increasing and the number of leases increasing by double, the delayed value shouldn't increase if, in fact, it should actually decrease. So when the Bureau is going through with these delayed value leases, they really should make sure that they're being done properly. And that's why we think a third party would actually help make sure that they're fair and everybody's paying a fair rate. And who might a third party be? Is there any organization that has that capability? You know, I'm sure there's several out there. I don't want to identify anyone or another, but I think this is where the government could easily contract with a third party. And I'm sure there's plenty out there. We're speaking with Tim Stretton, policy analyst at the Project on Government Oversight. And let's turn our attention to another place where you testified recently, and that has to do with the Capitol Hill Police very much in the news, and especially its Office of Inspector General seems to operate quite secretly. What did you find there? You know, POGO, we are big supporters of inspectors general's offices. They do important oversight work, help identify and root out waste, fraud, and abuse in the federal government. However, in most of these agencies publish all their reports online in a publicly available way. You can see the reports, the recommendations. However, one agency that does not is the Capitol Police Office of Inspector General. And I think now more than ever, given with the insurrection that took place earlier this year at the Capitol, the Capitol Police IG is definitely in the forefront right now of doing their investigation to identify what went wrong and what security failures there were. However, their report, like other reports that they've done, are not public. They are a member of the legislative branch, and you know they are exempt from FOIA and certain transparency laws. And I think that's really unfortunate, given the huge security failure that we saw this year. And the Capitol Police IG has told POGO that they can't publicly release its own reports because the Capitol Police Board has issued a directive prohibiting the release of these reports. And we think that shouldn't be the case. First of all, IGs should be independent of their agencies. And the Capitol Police IG itself on their website claims that they are an independent agency. But if they're taking directives from the Capitol Police Board about not making their things transparent, that inherently makes them not an independent agency. So I think this is where Congress really has a role here to prohibit the board from issuing this directive. And last year, the Legislative Branch Approach Committee in the House did pass you know, a directive in their appropriations bill, encouraging the Capitol Police Board to make everything public to the extent possible. There are certain restrictions for security and national security, but until this directive from the Capitol Police Board is revoked, unfortunately, we're not going to see any of these public reports. And while we did get a small glimpse a few months ago when the Capitol Police IG testified, those small flash reports were only made possible through the release from the congressional committees, and they weren't actually released by the IG themselves. Just a quick detail question. The board consists of the architect of the Capitol and the two sergeants at arms for the House and Senate? Yes, and I believe the police chief as well. Got it. And so it's kind of interesting, the police chief being able to tell the inspector general what to publish and not to publish is, seems like an inherent conflict. But do members of Congress get to see those reports? Otherwise, who does see them? They were definitely given to the congressional committee during the hearing. So certain members of Congress should have access to these. But this wasn't just an attack on Congress on January 6th. This was an attack on American democracy, and the American people should have a right to see these reports. So as more of these reports are released, you know, these series of flash reports, you know, we hope the Capital IG is transparent and is able to post these on their website, as well as, you know, the depository on the Council of Inspectors General. They have a depository of all 
OIG reports. We hope they follow agency practices and publish them there as well. Just on a note on security, though, even the Department of Defense will oftentimes post redacted classified reports, at least that they exist so people can FOIA them. And even other congressional IGs like Government Accountability Office, they also actually produce their reports in a publicly available way. Yeah, they have a great operation to get them out there. <laughs> it's really yeah. great reading. And yes, uh, we've seen a lot of those redacted reports from IGs. But like you say, at least you know something's going on, even though the black lines often outweigh the text that you can read in there. So in order for the IG of the Capitol Hill Police to start releasing reports, that would take congressional action then to tell the board to tell the IG it's okay to publish these things. You know, unfortunately, most likely we'll have to take congressional action, but the board themselves could rescind this order today if they wanted to. Until that happens, though, I think we have to look to Congress to step up here and uh, make that decision. Tim Stretton is policy analyst at the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks so much. Thank you. Good talking to you. We'll post this interview along with links to his testimony at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? 
you know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned 
and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick. Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Love Target? Well, you're about to love it even more. Target's new Red Card Reloadable saves you 5% every Target trip, in-store and online, and doesn't require a bank account or credit check to get approved. Target.com slash Red Card to get all the details. Restrictions apply. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash Podcast One to learn more and start your free trial.